Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Je Suis Francis edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast. Uh, here in Washington, we're recording this on Tuesday because Pontifex, Pope Mageddon, Pope Apocalypse. That's not why we're recording it. That's on not Tuesday. why we're recording early because all the traffic's going to be closed down. No, we're recording early because tomorrow is Yom Kippur, and uh, really, the you know, Pope is going to be fasting in synagogue. The Pope is coming for Yom Kippur. The post Pope is coming for Yom Kippur. <laughs> That's why he wears the little yarmulke. And, That's what it is, and he's all not going to ride in the Pope mobile because you know you don't drive on Yom Kippur. Does he have like a like a Shabbos? That's why they're, cl- that's that why they're closing. Well, he, that he's his own Shabbos boy. They're going to oh, close Mass Ave so he can work. walk to synagogue. <laughs> Yes, the Pope is coming for Yom Kippur, so we're recording on Tuesday. <laughs> I love this idea. Now, did no one check, by the way? Did he not check? It seems very insensitive to, you know, uh, all of our Jewish friends in Washington who might, like, want to go hear the Pope. And would you guys be out there, like, in the Pope parade, if not for in synagogue? I, you know, I, I think the Pope's got to be doing something on Yom Kippur, and he might as well be out there speaking to the people. Yeah, I mean he's not really coming here to see us anyway. So oh, you never—he's coming here to see all of us. He said he wanted to meet the people. Sixty Minutes got an interview, like a ten-second interview with him. And he was like, "What are you going to do?" He's like, "Meet people." Well, if he'll meet a lot of people, he was good. That Pope—he didn't give anything up. Mascot Pelly. (laughs) Message to the Pope: If in when you come to meet people, you want to meet Jews, don't come on Yom Kippur. Where are the Jews? I was told they would be here. Yeah, they will. So it's going to be an absolute um, frickin' mess in Washington for the That's next the few days. That's the technical term for the it. The technical yes. term, yeah. People are actually treating this in this town as the equivalent of, like, you know, a blizzard descending yes. upon us. Or the an supermarket inaug- or an inauguration. lines were impressive because when the Pope comes, you got to make sure you have toilet paper, bread, and milk. Totally. And a Segway. Because <laughs> he might stop be- by. Because it's the only means of transportation that is not utterly thwarted by the Pope is my Segway. You know, it my all segue. comes down to the Segway for Ben. That's it. It's yeah. all about the Segway. Yeah, when the apocalypse or the Pope-pocalypse comes, Ben will have easy you, and available transportation. Tomorrow, when you guys are, like, stuck in some bumper-to-bumper, you know, pressed up against strangers <laughs> in the metro, um, <laughs> I will be zooming by you all, waving laughing. cheerfully. All laughing the way to Shul. Ay, ay, ay. Well, happy Yom Kippur, happy Pope visit, everybody. Uh, this week on the show, Russia is about to intervene in Syria. Good luck with that. Let us know how it works out. Um, the U.S. and China are contemplating a cyber arms treaty. And the New York Times good editorial board. Good luck with board. that. Yeah, good luck with that, too. And good luck with this. The New York Times editorial board has a plan for closing Guantanamo. Maybe yeah, good luck with that. Maybe it's the good luck with that it's edition. It's the good luck with that edition. Yep, exactly. Plus, in Object Lessons, Edward Snowden has a new look. Uh, ben, why don't you start us off? Or no, sorry, no, tomorrow's going to start us off, actually, with her wordplay. Okay, I will start you off with my wordplay, which is a, uh, a Reuters piece that came out today 
about uh, the Russian military buildup in Syria and the attitudes of the Gulf Arab states toward that. And there's this weird sort of duality, I think, both out in the region and in Washington about um, seeing the Russians put combat aircraft, drones, and several thousand troops, apparently, into uh, into Syria on behalf of Bashar al-Assad. It's not yet clear, of course, what the Russians have set as their objective, whether this operation is designed to um, give them the ability to protect a sort of rump Assad-led Alawi statelet along the, the Mediterranean coast and, and protect the Russian uh, naval base there at Tartus, or whether this is some broader effort where they're going to go on the march with Assad and with the, the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps to push back Oof. against the rebels, because Assad has been suffering losses. There have been articles about how difficult it's been for him to maintain troop strength, because a lot of Syrians are successfully avoiding um, mandatory military service in a very unpopular fight at this point. But whatever is going on, what we know is that what was a civil war and then became a regional proxy war now could potentially become a global proxy war. Um, the Gulf states are really upset about seeing the Russians double down on Assad, um, in part because they thought they had had some success in persuading Vladimir Putin that uh, that Assad had no chance to survive and that Russia needed to help work toward a diplomatic solution to the conflict. Now they see this new investment and they worry about what it means. Um, they also seem to be uh, hoping that the United States is going to come in on the other side and balance this apparent Russian escalation with an escalation of the American presence in Syria, and that the Gulf states think that perhaps it will strengthen their argument to Washington, number one, that that U.S. Um, assistance is needed to bring down Assad, or at least to bring this battle to a close. And and also, they, you know, they seem to be hoping that maybe this will be another Russian quagmire. Maybe this will be right. like the Russian intervention in Afghanistan. The Saudis, for one, helped finance some really fierce um, jihadi insurgents that beat back the Russians in Afghanistan, so maybe they would do the same here. I don't know exactly what this is going to add up to, except for one thing for sure, I think, which is an escalation of the conflict, yep. an escalation of the violence. And so for, uh, for the world, which has been watching the miserable human cost of this war and the flow of refugees now into Europe, hoping for some relief, I think we're actually going to see the opposite. But, you know, I, I don't know how to read where the U.S. is going to go from here. And I wanted to get your thoughts. Do you yeah. think that Russian engagement is going to make it more likely that the U.S. will um, strengthen and clarify its objectives in Syria? Uh, or do you think this is just going to take a reticent Obama administration and deter it further from getting more deeply involved? I think it's a pretty bad week when we can say that the Russians have a more coherent strategy in Syria than the United States does. Um, we just got word this afternoon that John Allen is resigning as the head of the administration's ISIS coalition building. Yes, although I think that's been coming for a long time. <coughs> okay, I'm not well, sure that's so it's, really because Well, the of timing anything. sucks, I suppose, Yeah, the, for the timing optics. sucks, for sure. Uh, you know, look, I mean, we, we had a report on this in the Beast yesterday that, you know, every, all the U.S. officials we're talking to are saying, yes, we presume military operations will begin soon. We still don't know the target, you know, whether it's going to be just ISIS or whether it's going to be ISIS and other guys we'd like to team up with. 
But you know, I, I just don't see any evidence that this is going to clarify things and, and, and make and give us a more coherent uh, strategy or make us more committed to one particular you know line of attack. Or I, I, I see no evidence of that. Maybe I'll be surprised in the next couple of days. But what does seem to me to be kind of the brewing strategy here is, boy, it sure looks like we're sort of kind of half passing off the baton to the Russians here. Okay, I'm going to be provocative here and say that I think this is a wonderful thing and very clarifying. Um, You know, there has been a lot of uh, noise in both the West and in the United States that we should throw our lot in with Assad because he's on the other side in some sense than ISIS and that we have to pick our enemy and choose our friends accordingly. And, I and that's think, been the Russian view and that's been all the, along. And that's been the Russian view. And I think it is a very useful and clarifying thing for the Russians to come in and make clear that if you're taking that view in the United States, you are kind of in bed with Vladimir Putin. And I also think it's a useful and clarifying thing uh, for the Russians to make clear that they have some skin in the game uh, on behalf of Assad. Uh, There are a lot of people in the world who, when Russia is in the background, don't notice the role that it's playing particularly. But Russian troops out there fighting for uh, Bashar Assad um, and, you know, actively working with Bashar Assad is a clarifying thing about where they stand in much the way that the action in Ukraine was clarifying for a lot of people. And but I but just that's, that is a very cautionary parallel because you seem to be implying then that the United States should conclude from this the necessity of committing itself and its policy to Assad's ouster. But in Ukraine, of course, that uh, assertive, clear Russian Um, aggression did not provoke a clear U.S. response. Well, so look, I mean, I think right now we have a set of coalitions that includes on the one side the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, Bashar Assad, Vladimir Putin, uh, and Hezbollah. What a bunch of great (laughs) guys. Wouldn't you want to hang out and have a beer with them? That's one side of the war. On the other side of the war, we have al-Nusra, ISIS, uh, and scattered, not good guys, but not so bad guys. Who and I'd be afraid to even suggest having a beer with them. Right. Yeah, you wouldn't want to have a beer. With they don't drink beer. So exactly. I think when you when you line up the constellations on both sides, you say getting involved in this war in some in some meaningful military sense is probably a non-starter. And so what's our core interest? Our core interest, in my opinion, should be civilian protection. But but how likely is that going to be when the Russians are not going to be constrained in protection of civilian targets the way that we would be? A A and B, if the United States does um, make the conclusion (coughs) that you just suggested, Ben, and holds back, the Gulf states are only going to increase their support for the rebel factions in Syria and probably will not hold back from funding some of the more extreme factions that the U.S. has dissuaded them from funding more recently. And the result is going to be an increase in the conflict and an increase in human suffering. Now, the only response the United States has had in terms of civilian protection so far is to say over the next 10 years we'll accept 10,000 Syrian refugees and we're going to be big funders of the UNHCR. But 
When the neighbors have um, suggested creating safe zones inside Syrian territory, the U.S. has really not wanted to. So, I mean, I think that policy really needs to be revisited. I mean, realistically, um, we would not and should not get involved on the side of Assad. We're not also going to, you know, decide, okay, let's stop bombing ISIS and team up with them to take on Assad, much, you know, or Nusra for that matter, whatever Petraeus may be saying. So whose side are we on here? And I think the honest answer is we're on the side of civilians, or we should be on the side of civilians who both of these sides are massacring in very, very ugly ways. And I think, you know, having a policy based on civilian protection is a is a policy that's you know humane and not offensive to our interests. That, yeah, but what does it mean in practice? If the US priority is civilian protection, there is a very limited, almost non-existent set of military operations that work in accordance with that goal. The real goal, strategic goal, if you want civilian protection, is to end the war. Mm-hmm. End the war. And the way to end the war is to achieve a hurting stalemate on the ground. That means that the United States does need to take on Assad in some sense as one whose capabilities have increased, whose ability to wage war and continue war have increased while taking on ISIS, which I'm sorry to say has been the the precise policy shift that many, many people have been urging on this administration for more than two years to no effect. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I am very skeptical that we can engineer an outcome in which uh, there's likely to be a negotiated settlement. I just, I don't believe that. Well, John Kerry certainly thinks that there is, right? I mean, he's been... Well, but he thinks that, that John, about John, every Yeah, conflict. John Kerry's never seen a situation that he doesn't <clears throat> think he can, by force of personality, settle. Yeah, he's going to get the Nobel Peace Prize. I'm excited about that. Uh, my question also to you guys, too, on this is to what degree, I mean, how does this raise the risk of, you know, U.S. forces and Russian forces coming into conflict as well? I mean, you've got a lot of planes flying around now. We talk about deconflict, mm-hmm. but, you know, things get out of control very quickly. It's a very small box that they're in. And what if we suddenly see Russian forces, you know, going after, you know, presumed Nusra or rebel targets in civilian areas and bombing indiscriminately. I mean, can you imagine a situation in which one of our guys says, forget this, I'm taking out that hind helicopter who's bombing these people? I mean, will will the rules of engagement become so restrictive that we just stand by and watch the Russians go in here and strafe whole neighborhoods? Not saying that that's what they're going to do. Well, look, I mean... And that's, of course, what Assad has been doing, too, and we haven't done anything about it. And I think, you know, the United States has held back from, from... preventing that barrel bombing of civilian populations up until this point. But you're right to worry about um, even inadvertent uh, run-ins between military forces, especially in the air. It's a small airspace. Um, And we have to introduce another actor with air power uh, over Syria, which is the Israelis. And it's no accident that Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, flew off to Moscow to talk to to the Russians about precisely this issue reportedly, because although the Israelis have worked hard to stay out of the Syrian conflict, the one thing they've insisted on is that they will not countenance um, uh, sophisticated weapons transfers to Hezbollah. And several times, apparently, they've carried out airstrikes, including over Syrian territory, to do precisely that. So they want to maintain their freedom of action in this now much more complicated war space. I'm going to make a prediction that nothing good comes of this. 
I think that's. We'll a see which safe one of bet. us is right, Winnis. Well, <laughs> I mean, I don't. I don't think we're disagreeing. Well, it is clarifying and awful, perhaps. I mean, I think it's it's useful when Russia engages in a fashion that isn't denied. Yeah, fair enough. And they're not actually doing something very different from what they were doing two weeks ago. It's just a question of how much they admit. Uh, Okay, so speaking of things that people do that they don't admit, China, which has uh, long... What a segue, wow. What a segue, you like that? Yeah, I like my segue better. (laughs) (laughs) It's It's the double entendre edition. It's always about a segue. Um, So the U.S. and China, uh, China, of course, being the major source of cyber espionage against U.S. companies. Now, now, Shane, China is the primary victim of cyber spying. Well, as they are a victim of a lot of cyber spying. As you well know. We just don't give the stuff that we, you know, steal from their companies to our companies. And their claims to the South China Sea are indisputable. Oh, well, of course. Of course. Wow. What have you been drinking? Who am I to judge, as Francis would say? (laughs) 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 Uh, But the New York Times had a very interesting story uh, from David Sanger last Friday. Um, that the U.S. and China are complica- com- contemplating uh, what's now, I guess, being described as a cyber arms treaty. And the interesting thing here is we talked last week about, uh, per Jack Goldsmith's post on Lawfare, <clears throat> that the administration, through various leaks and trial balloons, has been doing a lot of public hand-wringing and saber-rattling, a lot of mixing of metaphors, actually, <laughs> about whether it was going to sanction China for cyber espionage. And it appeared that there was some agreement that got struck around this topic. Well, now it's looking like there may be some sort of agreement that has absolutely nothing to do with cyber espionage. Um, The Times is reporting that China and the U.S. may agree not to use cyber attacks on each other's critical infrastructure, so things like power plants and big communication systems, um, as a first strike kind of weapon in peacetime. Which made me think, really, was there a big concern about China preemptively launching attacks on the United States power grid? Know, provoke, in unprovoked peacetime. in peacetime for no reason. I mean, my <clears throat> you know analysis on this, and I've written extensively about it, is that you know if if we ever saw the Chinese launching an attack on a power grid, we would be immediately at war with China, and we would assume that it was the opening salvo of you know a, a combination of moves uh, involving other uh, forces as well, and not just cyber. So, I mean, it strikes me that this cyber arms treaty, if we're actually going to hear about it this week has very little to do with the huge problem that the administration has been, you know, talking about uh, uh, publicly uh, and in off-the-record and in background settings as well. I, I don't see what one really has to do with the other, and I don't see why reaching an agreement not to launch massive cyber attacks on each other first in peacetime has anything to do with stopping China from robbing American companies blind. Mm-hmm. So without disagreeing with you, Shane, uh, the administration has an argument here, and it goes something like this. We have to establish certain norms for international behavior in cyberspace. And the most important first thing that we can both establish with the Chinese is the illegitimacy of cyber attacks on critical infrastructure. and so what they did was they used the threat of sanctions as a way to uh, compel or force the Chinese to come to the table and come to that broad high-level agreement on what's the sort of most dangerous thing that we can imagine. And by doing that, you begin to develop the norms. 
then, I mean, I suppose the question is whether that's really a cost that the Chinese paid um, or whether they simply agreed to what they were never going to do anyway. Right. Um, I I think it's pretty hard to, to argue that the administration got something out of this. On the other hand, they didn't they didn't say they weren't going to do sanctions. They merely delayed them until after she leaves. But we've right? seen yeah, that and I also, too. I mean, y- you can say they didn't get anything. I don't think they really gave anything up either because this wasn't exactly a tactic that was, um, as far as we know, a major part of American strategic planning. No, but no, but they gave up something very big, which is that they announced you know, off the record in countless leaks a few weeks ago that they were about to slap big, important sanctions on the Chinese companies. They they haven't said that they're not going to do that. And if they do that, that's for an entirely different set of behaviors that, as Shane noted, aren't addressed by this apparent agreement. This is also a pretty typical approach in arms control that, first of all, you look at the catastrophic problem first and you try and solve that first, even if it's unlikely. Um, but secondly, that, you know, this is an area where these two states have capabilities that they don't necessarily want to discuss in detail with one another, the capabilities that they have. And they don't they aren't necessarily prepared to give up voluntarily any of those capabilities in a major way. But they want to see what they can agree on to begin to build confidence. And that's about normative development, as Ben was saying, but it's also about, you know, arms control. And this is a new arena for arms control. So I'm not surprised by the approach. It's not significant in and of itself. Um, I don't think we were all terrified of that, co- of that scenario. But, um, but what it suggests is that there is a desire on the part of both the United States and the Chinese government to find negotiated pathways to develop norms on this issue that each of them would agree to be bound by. And that's a very different approach than the tit-for-tat, retaliatory, deterrent-focused approach that, you know, that people who wanted to see sanctions right away have been advocating. So it does indicate something, but it indicates something about the overall approach to the problem. And I'm not sure whether that's a good thing or not. So I I, I agree with that, and I think that that is... One way of looking at this is now we're, we are now on the path to discussing norms, and if we can sort of agree on the high-level stuff, then we'll maybe start to find agreement on the lower-level stuff. My thought on this, though, is that the Chinese will never agree on the lower-level stuff, and that they will look at us like they, they, they will see us as having been played. Essentially, that all they had to give up was, <clears throat> you know, to use the nuclear equivalent, which I think it's overused too much, but it's essentially saying, you know, we won't nuke you, but we will, you know, do all kinds of other things militarily and intelligence-related to you that you don't like. Um, so we've taken this one thing off the table, but all the other stuff is fair game. Now, what will be really impressive is if they announce this in the agreement, and then as soon as it gets on the plane, they sanction the Chinese. I think that would signal, you know, that we are on our own sort of establishing norms and drawing red lines. Not that the Chinese don't know that they, this is a red line for us, but, um, you know, it remains to be seen what's in the agreement, but I just I just think this is, I see this as the Chinese getting something and us really not coming away. Well, with I wanted. think it depends what we do with sanctions at the end of the day. If they, by agreeing to this, have gotten away with no sanctions, um, then they've really gotten a win. But it could just be a face-saving way of getting through the visit. Yeah, it could. Dinner to be would be continued. dinner would be very awkward. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> I think this whole visit's going to be. Can awkward. you pass the sanctions, Mr. President? <laughs> I, I mean the salt. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, Ben, we'll move on to your wordplay. Who has a secret plan for closing the prison at Guantanamo? Well, the New York Times, in an editorial on Sunday, a big Sunday editorial entitled, How to Close Guantanamo, uh, introduced a new plan to close Guantanamo. And as best as I can tell, it has three parts. First, release everybody who's been cleared to release. Okay? Fair enough. Second, release everybody else who hasn't been cleared to release but whom you can't prosecute. Third, drop all the criminal charges against everybody that you're prosecuting in military commissions because military commissions are an abomination in the sight of God and release everybody who you can't try in a federal court in the United States, which is to say release almost everybody who's there except for about 10 people, and then you've closed Guantanamo. Um, and genius. If you want to get rid of the people in Guantanamo, you just let them go. Right. That's <laughs> the actual plan. So um, if you think I'm exaggerating this, um, here are the key sentences do you get the sense he doesn't like this plan very much? I, I think that he's reviewed this plan and considered it um, as an opinion. Well, so uh, so first it says, as to the cleared but not released um, uh, um, category, um, it says, the government offers two dubious excuses for those detainees' continued detention. One is that more than 80% of the cleared detainees are Yemenis who cannot be safely repatriated to a homeland roiled by war. But in fact, many countries have stepped forward to offer to take in cleared detainees, including Yemenis. The other is that by law, the Secretary of Defense, Ashton Carter, must personally determine that the threat posed by each new release can be managed. The Pentagon chief may well fear shouldering the blame if a released detainee is later involved in terrorist activity, but this does not excuse the sluggish pace with which he and the previous secretary have acted. So in other words, the answer to the problem of the cleared but not released detainees is release them. Now, what's the answer on the ones who you haven't cleared because they're too dangerous but you can't prosecute? Um, Quote, this is unacceptable in a country that often lectures other governments for imprisoning people without due process. If the government is unwilling to prosecute these men, it must release them. And then finally, the Times reiterated its objection in principle to military commissions and its insistence that people be tried only in federal court. So the secret plan by the New York Times for closing Guantanamo is, one, release those you can release, Two, release those you can't release. And third, uh, drop charges against everybody you can't try in federal court and release them. And why is that a bad plan? Well, so... Sounds um, like it would close Guantanamo. So let's, I mean, let's say there are virtues of this plan. You would close Guantanamo. So there's two big, big problems with this plan. One is that it's illegal. 
Um, Congress has restricted the ability to bring detainees to the United States, including for trial. So the whole idea of dropping charges against them and charging them in federal court is illegal. Uh, and the second and more important, more fundamental problem is that um, the number of people who are deemed impossible to try but too dangerous to release include a lot of high-level al-Qaeda people. It's not just low-grade Yemenis. It's people like Hambali. It's people like Abu Zubaydah. It's well, surely people. they address that. In no, the they don't mention who they are. Um, and uh, it's people like Mohammed Katani, who would have been the 20th hijacker had he not been turned away at the uh, Orlando airport shortly before 9-11. I mean, there are some pretty serious people down there. And so my question to you guys is, what does a New York Times editorial like this represent? Is it just the kind of wishful thinking that, you know, we're 14 years later, we're tired of the sort of 9-11 stuff, just make it go away? Is it a real belief that it's time to let senior al-Qaeda people go? Or is it, you know, what does it represent? I think it represents the unfinished business of the Obama administration. Um, and I think it's fascinating that that the editorial page chose to try and lay out its own plan rather than simply reiterate that this is unfinished business that the administration should finish, which has been its consistent view. Um, and so I, I think it's more political than policy, and I can hear all of the disdain in your voice for the policy logic or illogic of this proposal, but I think we have to understand it as politics more than policy. So my disdain is not really for the argument that we should let people go if we're not going to charge them. I think my disdain is for the idea that you would make that argument in the abstract and not, as Shane say, says, deal with the reality of who you're proposing to let go and who you're proposing, you know. The Obama administration, to its credit, has never said that it's in closing Guantanamo, it's going to let all these people go. What it talks about is moving them to facilities in the United States. <coughs> the Times, you know, doesn't want to do that either. Um, so, yeah, I agree with you. I, I think it's I think it reflects some sort of spiritual commitment to getting this done, but in a fashion that I really think misinforms its readership about what the policy choices really are. It also seems to me to reflect just, and I'm sure that the Times editorial board might agree with me on this, just the futility of this situation. This is not a problem, I think, that is going to get solved before the president leaves, despite previous reporting in that newspaper uh, on that. Um, You know, I... Personally, I think people are just going to die of old age down there, and it's going to be there forever. Maybe I'm just way too cynical about it. But, you know, you know, Ben, you having you being a defrocked you know, journalist and having written op-eds, I mean, what is the kind of thinking that goes on in the editorial room? Like, this? is this them saying, you know, we've been meaning to write this damn piece forever. Let's just do it. Because, you know, we know it's nev- the, nothing's going to change. The administration's going into its last year. If they're ever going to take this on, they're going to have to do it now. Maybe we can push them over the edge or shame them into it or shame Congress into it. 
And but, the and a Trail know, Board does, I mean, seem to but, think that it has a, a track record influencing U.S. foreign policy. Well, by the way. whether whether they do or don't, I think they do view themselves as being a moral voice more than yeah. you know a seat at the interagency policy table, right. and that's appropriate. And what you said, Shane, the idea that well. We, we should all just despair of being able to solve this problem and resign these guys to dying of old age down there. That's um, something that I think we should reject. And just because it's hard, and it is, if mm-hmm. you take it seriously, hard and risky for any policymaker, just because Congress has tied the entire policy apparatus in knots trying to solve this problem for political reasons, doesn't mean that the New York Times shouldn't say it still needs a solution and you, Congress, and the administration need to figure out how to get it done. As I said before, I think perhaps the problem with the editorial is that it doesn't merely say that, but it tries to prescribe in a way that's totally unworkable. Well, it's more than that. I mean, I think that what they're proposing to get done, what the Obama administration proposes to get done, is to close Guantanamo. What the New York Times proposes to get done is to free everybody at Guantanamo. And those are very different propositions. And one of them is much more obviously, to me, a desirable proposition than the other. And I think there is a group of people at Guantanamo who, if you free them, there will be a body count associated with freeing them. And I don't think that's a morally... uh, simple good. I think that's a, you know, the aggregate may be morally negative. Um, You know, I certainly understand that. And it's interesting. And a lot of conversations with colleagues about Syria and intervention over the last few days, um, we've had, we've discussed how the U.S. government weighs immediate and concrete risks relative to distant and diffuse risks. And um, the idea that if you release a particular person, they might go out and kill Americans is, I think, a more concrete risk, even though it itself is somewhat distant and diffuse, it's still more concrete than the risk to American credibility or the cost to American credibility, to America's rule of law, to our sense of ourselves as a country of consigning an entire group of people to purgatory simply because we can't figure out what to do about them. And so I would say, you know, you say, well, the the goal of closing Guantanamo is a better goal than freeing the people in Guantanamo. I would say neither of those is defining the goal in the right way. The real goal is to resolve the status of these people in one manner or another in a, in a way that is defensible. And yes, it's hard. I mean, I, and I'll, I'll stop here, but I, I really think, you know, the, the diffuse is, issue is not that people are going to come kill Americans. Realistically, America has done a very good job of protecting its people from getting killed. The realistic outcome is that more Yemenis get killed. And I think, you know, the... Yeah, but this administration is already having no problem with more Yemenis getting killed by its acquiescence in the, in the war that the Saudis and others are waging there, which, by the way, is empowering al-Qaeda. That's killing far more Yemenis than letting any individual out of Guantanamo. Uh, you know, letting Wuhaishi out of Guantanamo was not a neutral act from Yemen's point, you know, from the point of view of, of, of death to Yemenis. And I think, you know, when you're talking about a bunch of, you know, high-level al-Qaeda people, um, Hambali is responsible for the Bali bombing in which 212 people were killed. 
Um, does the New York Times really want to let him go? That, to me, is an entirely distinct question. Why? Uh, from the question of whether his status needs to be resolved. And if the U.S. government were, hypothetically, to make the judgment that justice for the Bali bombings is desirable but unachievable because we can't charge him in either a military commission or a federal trial, therefore, um, perhaps we will let him uh, go back to the battlefield, whereupon he will be a legitimate target. Um, that's a judgment that a U.S. government might need to make. I think that's a defensible judgment. And, you know, and I think that's better than not having any answer to why these guys are where they are and how long they're going to be there. I would have preferred that when Baghdadi was in our custody, we had thought harder about letting him go. Yeah, I, uh, agreed, and I don't think that means that not letting them go is always the answer. No, I don't think it's always the answer. I think that to, to write an editorial that says letting them go is always the answer is an irresponsible thing to do. Okay, I think we found a, a narrow area of agreement, which is that we don't like the New York Times' proposal, but we disagree <laughs> on the alternative. Shane? <laughs> I think it's safe to say none of the presidential candidates will be embracing it either. D- probably not. Probably Maybe not. Bernie Sanders. Oh, yeah. He's probably got a plan. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, all right, let's move on to object lessons. Um, why don't I go first? Since we led the show with the Pope, I thought that I would bring in this is a map. It's actually, there are a number of apps now uh, on various... Pope apps? Pope, well, they're, they're more like sort of embedded uh, uh, little apps on websites. This one came from Washingtonian's website, showing papal road closures, as they call it in this one, where they just sort of black out in, or are maroon out, and then in some places pink out. Uh, the area, the no-go zones? Yeah, like the capital. no-go zones. And I can't tell from the key, like, is this a no-go today and is this is tomorrow? But anyway, as you can see here, it's sort of just like, you know, it's like, you know, one of those... Uh, like a like a like an MRI of a heart, and you can see where the arteries are clogged. Totally clogged. That's yeah. our city. And totally just for the and for those, I'll put this on the website. But just so for those who who don't know Washington that well, trust us when we say like these are not the red zones that you want to see if you want to be able to move freely and easily in the District of Columbia. You know, is. I think the one shutting that, down, folks. Seriously, that's that's a little scary. That is scary. It's I, r- it's r- right around. I mean, basically all of downtown Washington, and then also environs outside of Embassy Row and by a Segway, guys. Yes, yeah, seriously. And then oh, and then also, of course, up by my neighborhood, up by the Basilica. Of course, sort of ish, my neighborhood. You know, and a Segway will get you so far. But one of these map apps that I saw yesterday was. Uh, tweeted out by the Secret Service, it was a pedestrian walking map. In other words, where you may not walk <laughs> in Washington. Oh, God. Oh, you can't walk. Yes. Oh, I thought it was going to be like friendly walk. walking routes for you. <laughs> oh, my God. Just stay home, people. Yeah. Just stay home and stay in your synagogues. Watch it on TV. Stay underground. <laughs> um, Tammy, would you like to go next with your object? Sure. Well, um, I brought today uh, something that for me is pretty exciting. But I also wanted to pose it as a, an opening for podcast listeners to, to weigh in. This is my application form for my visa to the People's Republic oh, of China. It's a lovely Ooh. application form. <laughs> um, where I'm headed to lecture at Peking University for a week in October. I'm very excited about it. Is their mascot the ducks? I don't. <laughs> 
Sorry. Once. That's no. really bad. <laughs> that was really bad. Um, but I'm, I'm going there to lecture on the Middle East, and I'm really looking forward to conversations with my Chinese academic counterparts about how they're thinking about the Middle East and Chinese interests in the Middle East. Don't bring your phone. Uh, I, I will not bring my phone. Don't I will bring not bring computer. my laptop. I will try to bring nothing electronic more complicated than maybe my wristwatch. Oh. Uh, and I guess I'll have to lecture either from note paper or from memory. How quaint. Yeah, it'll be like stepping back in time. Aww. Yeah. They invented paper. There you go. You could be on. And they're going to return us to it. <laughs> no, no, we got an agreement. It solves everything. Oh, so, okay. all right. So, this is my my opening to uh, to podcast listeners. Is is it safe for me to take any electronic items, like Ooh. even an iPod, with me to China? Yeah, we, let us know that. Tweet, tweet at us at RATL Security and let us know if you think that Tamara should be going electronicless when she goes to China, if she goes to China. Ben, your object. So I was browsing the sublime website Clickhole today, ah. and I found an article. Because the internet <laughs> needs more Clickhole. <laughs> entitled, This Artist Boldly Imagined Edward Snowden with Long Hair. And it is ah. a beautiful photograph wow, of... Wow, he looks like Steve Perry from Journey. It, ah. it, he yeah, looks he like... Uh, Edward Snowden with long hair and the text is stunning it says (laughs) suddenly we can envision how he would have felt resolutely brushing his bangs to the side as he prepared to leak the largest trove of government documents ever released is he a hero or is he a traitor either way as far as this picture is concerned he has long hair (laughs) The proof is right in front of our eyes. Okay, it is undeniable. We all have our opinions about Edward Snowden. Regardless of where you stand, though, you have to admit that the long hair is absolutely breathtaking. But we don't know what the motivation of the artist was to do this imagining. Oh, I don't think an artist really did it, right? It's a clickhole article. It's a clickhole article. Yeah, I should know. Yeah. So take a look at our webpage. We will, uh, we will link to the picture of Edward Snowden with his long hair. Yeah. Wow. I think, if I think he, he looks really, good. If he had hair like that, he would be doing the hair flip like Ann Coulter. It would be nobody's business. Yeah, I think he could definitely, uh, he may have engendered even more sympathy and he already has with that. Ooh, nice pun. Oh, you like that? Oh, I didn't even realize I did that. <laughs> did you guys see that? You, that Good was pun. Swap. I don't even know I'm doing it. <laughs> wow. It's that, that's just, that's just that effortless. <laughs> like, so you know, good. flowing locks. You're so good, Shane. <laughs> and I'm worth it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank God that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to our other shows and podcasts uh, at rational, oops, no, at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. And when you download the podcast, please make sure to leave a ratings and comment. Uh, and let your friends know. Let your parents know. Let people in synagogue know. Let your if dog you see know. the Pope, tell him to download the podcast. Thank you. Yes, please. The Pope should totally listen to this podcast. I think he probably does. I think he'd get a lot out of it. We know we have many powerful listeners. Uh, the podcast is edited by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Pope Francis and the Good Luck Long-Haired Players. <laughs> oh. 
good. I would definitely go see that band. Vatican City. Little banjo, I think. Exactly. On behalf of my friends Tamara Kaufman-Wittis and Ben Wittis, I'm Shane Harris. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.